welcome to Atari Bytes, the show where we take a bite out of the story within a classic Atari 2600 game and see if that story bites is bad. My name is Bill. This is episode 189. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to everybody. I'm guessing by now you've eaten the last leftover Labor Day burger. You've uh, drank the last beer. You've removed the horseshoe from Grandpa's ear. The result of a particularly intense round of yard games at the Labor Day picnic. And you've resumed normal life, like listening to this podcast, along with a healthy breakfast, regular exercise, an occasional leeching to remove you know, toxins in the blood. I think we can all agree that listening to this podcast is a staple of a long and healthy life. I should probably mention here that it's very, very late that I'm, as I'm recording this after a long day of work and excitement, well, not excitement, just the general uh, hectic day-to-day stuff of life, uh, and yet here I am uh, late at night. Instead of sleeping, I am here recording a podcast, so you, you've been warned. Speaking of warnings of ominous things to come, gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat, he's mad, Mike Hughes, mad Mike Okay, so recently there was supposed to have been a second launch, right? He tried to do a launch earlier in the month. Oh, just to recap for any new listeners I have. First of all, welcome new listeners. Mad Mike Hughes is a 60-something-year-old dude who lives out in Nevada. A professional limo driver. He's been a race car driver in the past, apparently. A, a sort of self-described daredevil. Um, motorcycles, race cars whatever and he is has got in his head not in his head he has actually built a rocket um last year the year before he tried to launch himself up to the carmen line the line between uh you know earth's atmosphere and space ostensibly he is trying to get high enough to take photos of the earth to prove that the earth is flat in the years and months since this has been going on, despite taking money from flat earth societies, he has sort of backed off of saying he's going to prove that the earth is flat to say instead that he's going to see, you know, what the deal is. He is a self-proclaimed, I think he has at times said that he is a self-proclaimed flat earther, uh, Trump supporter, but he talks more in terms of trying to see what's what. So he tried to do a launch, eh, like I say, a year or so ago, crashed, Hurt his back. He's okay, though, uh, luckily. And then last month, or earlier... Well, last month, not now, I guess. We're into September as you're hearing this episode. I'm recording this way in advance of when it comes out. I'm banking these episodes, so... But, but it's... You know, we're into September as you're listening to this. He did a launch in August. Not to get up to the Carmen line. He really only wanted to get up a 1,000 feet. He had a bad steam generator thing. That's the thing. His rocket's propelled by steam. And he had a bad part that he brought off Craigslist, crashed, he's okay, but he didn't make it up to 1,000 feet. He was supposed to launch again, as you're hearing this, last weekend, I believe, two weekends ago, and I still can find no news about what happened at that launch, one way or the other. I know that the thing was supposed to be filmed by Discovery Channel. They've got some sort of documentary that they're doing, or TV series or something, but I, I was looking again today, and I still can't see any coverage of what happened. I would think if he had been successful 
or well, or not successful for that matter. I would think there would have been some sort of news about it. There was last time when the launch failed. Within a couple of days, there were articles saying, "Yep, he failed." And there's also there have also been articles saying basically, "Yeah, he's not gonna make it because the steam-powered rocket ain't powerful enough to get him where he wants to go, even if he didn't have a bad part." So let's see what the Rocket Man—that's what he calls himself—on the Twitter. I keep getting messages. You know, side note, I keep getting messages from Amazon telling me that the uh, Rocket Man documentary is, is right there in my queue. If I want to watch it, it's available. I still haven't. If anyone else has, let me know. Twelve hours ago, from the time I'm recording this, there was a post on the Twitter page. This is Rocket Man. Jesse Combs walked the line and didn't care what people thought about what she said or did. This world needs more people like her and we will all miss her. The quote sums it up. Um, it's a link to an Amazon post. Quote, it may seem a little crazy to walk directly into the line of fire, those who are willing and those who achieve great things. Those who are willing are those who achieve great things. People say I'm crazy. I say thank you. I don't know who this is. From some of the hashtags, I'm guessing she was, a, was is a stunt woman? Don't know. I guess it's a good quote. Inspiring and all that. Ah, okay. The previous tweet from a day ago explains it. We are mourning the loss of a truly awesome human. Jesse was a pioneer, a dear friend, and we are devastated. For those of you who don't know, Jesse and I are from the same town in South Dakota and went to school together. Sorry, it was taking me to a link on Instagram. I had to wait for the rest of the post to come up. Okay, this wasn't my Mike posting this. It was somebody named Toby Brusso. So evidently, this was a stunt woman, uh, sort of a daredevil herself, who evidently passed away. Uh, sorry to hear that. A link to a Daniel Tosh thing. I'll pass on that. The Flat Earth GoFundMe campaign from August 23rd. A plug for the movie. And nothing about a rocket launch on here. Maybe they haven't gotten the uh, the, the bad steam generator thing fixed. You just go to Menards or something. Pick one up, can't you? And as always, the Facebook posts are just the same Twitter posts. So, yeah. Uh, oh. That reminds me. Last week, I said I was going to look at the GoFundMe page and see how much money is actually in there because they posted a, a meme on the 23rd that moment you realize you only have $65 on GoFundMe. So let's go see how much is actually in there. You want to come along? Come on, let's go. Oh, ho, ho. See? Memes aren't always true. I'm looking at the Mad Mike Hughes Space Launch GoFundMe page with a goal of... um. A goal of 2.5 million. They have raised $90. That's not $90,000. That's $90. 10 short of $100. To be fair, this page was only created on August 16th. Space launch to the edge of space, 62.8 miles to the Kármán line. A balloon will carry the craft and myself up 20 to 22 miles on the hydrogen peroxide rocket. Is that a thing? Hydrogen peroxide rocket? Are they going to bleach their hair while they're up there. The hydrogen peroxide rocket will ignite and propel me the remaining distance. Start to finish, two and a half hours. Donations range from, well, there's only three. Two donations of $20 each, and one person gave 50 bucks. See, what do you get? They don't list any uh, donation incentives here. I guess you're just giving out the goodness of your heart. But there was also a flat earth community rocket launch page that's got a video of Mad Mike on it. This one has a goal $7,875 and they have actually raised $7,931. They actually exceeded their goals. 138 donors over a 26 month period. 
apparently still accepting donations. We were contacted recently by a gentleman named Mad Mike Hughes. Not only is Mad Mike a daredevil, but he's also a flat earther who ran across... Well, we're not sure about that, are we? Who ran across our billboard while watching the flat earth media. Mad Mike's main stunt is loading himself into a rocket and firing it from a rocket launcher. Etc, etc. The individual donations look smaller here. Five and ten bucks, uh, basically. Not like that $50 dude. So there you go. Uh, Mad Mike's got 90 bucks. Alright, well, that's enough of that. Keep watching the skies, I guess, for steam-powered rockets, and, you know, watch your footing. No staring at your phones while you're going for a walk. You might tip off the edge of the earth. So, you know, just beware, friends. Gonna prove that the world is flat in his rocket ship, or else he'll go splat. He's Mad Mike Hughes. Mad Mike Hughes. Got a little feedback from friend of the show and all-around good dude, Sean Courtney, who you can listen to on the Pie Factory podcast, which you probably already do, uh, Autobiography of a Schnook, occasionally uh, the erstwhile Atari 7800 homebrew podcast. I don't think he's done an episode of that for a while. Or I may just be behind in listening. I'm not sure. If it's a video game thing, or like I say, Autobiography of a Schnook, which covers lots of things, uh, he's probably there. So Sean had comments about my comments regarding New Coke. If you remember last week, I think it was last week? Uh, two weeks ago, maybe. In the Wizard of War episode, I was talking about, uh, in the little news segment, I had seen an article about how New Coke really, you know, Coca-Cola's experiment in the 1980s with New Coke wasn't necessarily the colossal flop that it's pop culture would have you believe. The premise of the article, the thesis of the article was that actually if you look at the taste tests that were done at the time, New Coke was actually pretty popular. It beat the old stuff pretty handily in the taste tests, but then for various reasons it ended up you know, not becoming a, a staple. Uh, the, the, the media picked up on the few people who really, really hated New Coke and sort of ran with that. It sort of became a public relations thing. For Coke, they had to go back to the old stuff. Recently, um, because the most recent season of Stranger Things was set in 1985, I believe, when New Coke came out, um, New Coke had a cameo appearance in the series, and New Coke or, or Coca-Cola brought back New Coke for a limited time. I think Labor Day actually was the last time you could get it in the stores. Uh, so I noticed this article, and Sean had thoughts. Sean wrote... I remember trying New Coke when it came out in the 80s. To me, it tasted just like just like Pepsi, which was a shame because I much prefer Coca-Cola Classic. Does Coca-Cola still call itself Classic? If you buy a can or a bottle of Coke, does it still say Classic on it? I don't remember. Anyway, Sean continues. What it really fascinating? Uh, what's really fascinating though is that in blind taste test, New Coke went by landslide over Pepsi and original Coke. By the way, New Coke was still around for a while, or at least in the 90s. After they brought back the old formula, it was called Coke 2 during that time. I'd forgotten that, Sean, until you wrote that. Uh, and I do remember seeing the Coke 2 and thinking how dumb that was. Um, I didn't mind New Coke at the time. Uh, I was a Pepsi guy in the 80s. Uh, and I still kind of am. Although I've, the little bit that I drink any sort of cola anymore, I probably gravitate more towards Coke or actually really Dr. Pepper. No relation. Uh, you know, insert your Dr. Pepper joke here. 
so, you know, I am, uh, what's the word? Ecumenical. I think all pop is pretty much the same to some extent, as long as it's not diet. Diet pop is just icky. Sean had another observation, speaking of Coke. By the way, Bill, I know you're a Madman fan. I know you're a Mad Men fan. Oh, man. I am. Um, I gotta rewatch Mad Men sometime. I don't have time to watch all the new shows I want to watch. Never mind rewatching old shows. Although I have been watching The Prisoner. Uh, did I mention I'm recording this very late at night, so I'm easily distracted? I've been watching The Prisoner from the 1960s, which I've been meaning to do for years and years and years. And that is some trippy, weird stuff. I'm enjoying it big time. But, it, man, is it weird. Uh, go check it out. Patrick McGowan plays an ex-spy who's trapped on this weird, trapped in this weird village, and these guys who are either working for the Soviet Union or for our side, as they put it, trying to get some sort of information out of them. They're they're going nuts trying to figure out why Patrick McGowan quit being a spy, and he won't tell them. Every episode is this whole cat and mouse thing. Them trying to get this information, and him trying to just escape from the island or the village, I guess they call it. That's uh, pretty cool. Uh, weird though. Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, Sean was saying, I know you're a Mad Men fan. Have you ever seen the original version of the series finale? The final scene when Don comes up with a major idea for the Coca-Cola campaign. Oh, by the way, spoiler um, for Mad Men. The answer to that was, I remember hearing about it. I couldn't remember if I saw it. He included a link. It's on YouTube. Uh, rejected version of the final scene of Mad Men. I like the series the way it ended just fine. I don't think the rejected scene. I, I think it was fine that they rejected it. But it ties in with the Coca-Cola thing. So the takeaway here is don't drink pop. It's bad for you. Um, but if you're gonna, you know what? Drink whatever you want. Drink Coke, drink Pepsi, drink uh, Mountain Dew. Uh, Bark's root beer is pretty good. Uh, I like an orange soda every now and then. That's pretty tasty. You know, you do you. Drink whatever you want. Watch whatever TV shows you want. Don't hate on New Coke because you weren't there, depending on how old you are. And if you were, what difference does it make? It was like 30-odd years ago. Let it go. All right, and with that inspiring message, let's get on to this week's game. This week's game is Desert Falcon from Atari, 1987, which to me feels really late for an Atari 2600 game. Uh, but obviously it's not because here is one. And there were others, of course. Desert Falcon has this weirdly ominous picture. I don't talk about the artwork very much, but it has this weirdly ominous picture on the front cover of the, of the manual. You've got the name, Desert Falcon, with the little wings on either side. And you got this creepy dark black crow kind of thing. I guess it's supposed to be a falcon, but it looks to me more like a, like a crow or a raven or something. Swooping down on a sort of freaked out looking... I guess it's supposed to be a sphinx, but it's got this weird look on its face, like, ah! Its feet are all spread out like it's getting ready to run. And behind that, you see some other pyramids and some different geometric shapes of some sort. I guess they're supposed to be treasures or something. I don't know. It's all in kind of, you know, browns and blacks and uh, that kind of thing. Sort of a creepy looking picture. Not one that I would hang on my wall. As you know, occasionally I'll, maybe you don't know, I don't know. Uh, occasionally I'll look at some of this artwork and I'll think, yeah, I'd like a print of that to hang on my wall. But this isn't one of them. Alright, so we open up the manual. It tells us, all around you are long stretches of sand, ancient pyramids baking in the hot, dead air, and constant danger. The legends that brought you here are 30 centuries old. The tales tell of thieves who plundered the pharaoh's tomb, 
loading bags of gold, silver, and precious gems onto their camels, then making off into the desert. But in the night, horrible desert beasts pursued the robbers, and the priceless treasures were scattered and lost. Not even a camel was ever seen again. Now you search for the lost treasure, daring the beaks and claws of the desert guardians. As you scan the endless sands, endless, really? I don't think so. For the glitter of jewels, your eye catches sight of gliding shadows. Something's coming. You could turn back now and be safe, or you could go on and dare to steal the Pharaoh's jewels. Dun, dun, dun. All right. That sounds really cool. How many, uh, you know, uh, how many uh, of you want to place a bet that the game lives up to that incredibly cool description? Yeah, that's what I thought. So, we're inserting the, uh, the cartridge into the console. We're told that we can insert the cartridge into our Atari 2600 or 7800 console, because of course this was 1987, and by then, the 7800 was, was there. It's a one-player game. Well, for one player, you use the joystick and the left controller uh, jack. Two players plug a second joystick into the right controller jack. Your skill level choices are novice, standard, advanced, or expert. Uh, so you open things up by choosing one of those levels, and then whether it's a one or two player game, hit reset to start. Press select to redisplay the option screen at any time. The Pharaoh's lost treasures, enormous gems, big golden eggs, and silver ingots, blue moons, green clovers, uh, blue diamonds, frosted lucky charms. Man, now I'm hungry for lucky charms. Anyway, so all these gems and golden eggs and whatnot are scattered among the ancient pyramids and obelisks. Fly towards... Uh, okay, hold on. How many kids in 1987... I was a little bit older than, you know, a than I was when I got an Atari originally by 1987, so I probably had some idea what an obelisk was. But how many of the average game buyer in 1987 knew what the hell an obelisk was. Oh well, let's move on. Fly towards the treasures, then hover or hop over them to pick up and earn points. Use your joystick handle to maneuver. Follow the chart above. Wake up. I know it's late, you guys in the back, but you gotta look at this chart. Stop drooling. Alright. So, the chart tells us there are various things we can do. We can fire darts by pressing the fire button once. We can activate superpowers by pressing the fire button twice quickly. We can fly or gain altitude by pulling the handle backward. We can land, hop, or swim. I never got far enough in the game to actually try swimming. But to do any of those things, you push the handle forward, maintain altitude in the air, or stop on land, and you release the handle. I release the handle a lot. I didn't stop on land. Well, maybe I, yeah, maybe I guess I did. Move left by pushing the handle left, move right by pushing the handle right. These controls feel not intuitive to me at all. To go up... You have to pull backward on the joystick to go down. You have to push the handle forward. That feels like uh, it should be the opposite to me. So that messed me up a little bit when I was playing. The treasures are guarded by flying and crawling beasts. Burrowing U-ways, U-W-E-S, crawl out of the sand to charge at you, and vultures, warrior fetes, Scarabs, flying fish, and phantom gliders attack from the air. Darts fly at you, spit out by the howling sphinx, jerk, waiting at the end of the end of the trail. All these enemies will destroy you if they hit you. Protect yourself by firing darts. A direct hit destroys enemy creatures and gains you points. 
You can also maneuver around enemies at higher levels. Watch out for flame-throwing fire pots. That's a hard one to say. Flame-throwing fire pots. And dart-shooting mini sphinxes. They may be many, but their souls are huge. I just decided that. You begin the game with five lives. Each time you're hit or crash into an object, you lose a life. But you will recover as long as you have lives left. The end of the, each desert trek brings you to the Howling Sphinx. You must shoot the Sphinx in the middle of its face. Wow. In order to get past it. All the while dodging the darts and nasty creatures it spits at you. Where does a, a Howling Sphinx carry its darts? Because maybe I'm wrong, but I'm imagining that as like sort of this ephemeral ghost kind of thing. Where does it hold its darts? Oh, I have questions. Superpowers. Hop over three hieroglyphs scattered in the sand to gain superpowers. Superpowers give you great advantages, such as letting you destroy all enemies on screen at once or paralyze the Howling Sphinx. Check out the gaming box at the bottom of the screen to find out which power you've gained and whether it requires pressing the fire button twice quickly. You know, we've had a number of games that have tried putting these little boxes or radar displays or something on the screen with you in these Atari games, and it, it just never works, and it's really bad here, too. You don't have time to be looking down at these indecipherable little scribbles at the bottom of the screen. Plus, they really don't help you. You don't have the ability to change what you're doing all that much. Um, it's not like you have the sprawling landscape of Minecraft or something to change your course. Here, you've got just what's on the screen, and right now and stuff that's coming at you you can't there's not a whole lot of strategizing involved as far as you know planning okay i'm gonna go south now to do this thing or whatever and plus the the little scribbles of hieroglyphs and whatnot are so are mostly indecipherable you've got an ankh you've got a bowl you've got an eye you've got a man a bird a cane a feather and a sun over water all of which Sounds like it should be obvious what it looks like, but it's not really when you see it on screen. When you see it in this chart, I say when you see it in this chart, at least quit snoring in the back. In the chart, it looks like the thing it's supposed to be, except the feather, weirdly. The feather on screen looks more like a feather than it does in this manual. <laughs> so the superpowers that you get, you can air bomb by pressing the fire button and it will destroy all airborne, or airborne enemies and enemy darts inside. Decoy. Enemies are tricked into flying toward the decoy spot instead of towards you. You can hold the Sphinx. The Howling Sphinx is unable to spit creatures or darts at you. Invincibility. Nothing can destroy you. Omnicide. All enemies on screen are destroyed when you double press the fire button. Points. You're given free points. Polywater. You can fly and hop but not swim. Which seems weird. If water's right there in the name, why can't you swim? Roulette. You get to do cleanup in Vegas, I guess. No, wait, sorry. It says, you are given two random hieroglyphs. The next hieroglyph you pick up determines your next superpower. Shackles. You can fly and swim, but not hop. Okay. I guess that one kind of makes some sense. If you have shackles on, it's probably hard to hop. Alright, I get that one. Warp. You're the Enterprise, I guess. Oh, wait. You're fly you fly at lightning speed to the Howling Sphinx. Are you trying to get away from the Howling Sphinx? Again, I have questions. Scoring. Each enemy you destroy earns your points. Destroying an, a flying enemy increases the 
face value of treasures. You cannot shoot the Howling Sphinx's darts. Points range from 100 bucks for a Phantom Glider up to 1000 bucks for the Mini Sphinx. The first Howling Sphinx that you destroy will get you 5,000 points. Each additional Sphinx gets you whatever you got for the last Sphinx plus another 1,000 points, up to a 10,000 point maximum. During regular gameplay, each treasure you pick up earns you the base value, plus increases that treasure's value multiplier by 1. In the bonus round, each treasure is worth the base value times its value multiplier. You earn a bonus life at each, uh, each 10,000 points. You can have a minimum of 4 lives remaining. Maximum, sorry. Maximum of 4 lives remaining. Destroying the Howling Sphinx gains you entrance to the bonus round. Here your goal is to pick up as many treasures as you can in the time allowed. During the bonus round, your time allowed is counted down in seconds in the gaming box. The bonus score is tallied next to the time. When the round ends, the bonus screen is added to your current score. The last hieroglyph or superpower you gained reappear along with your remaining lives. You are not attacked in the bonus round and colliding with objects will not cost you a life. Only time is lost. Strategy. Gains the attitude of flying beasts by watching their shadows. I'm guessing their attitude pretty much is always, stay the hell away from my treasure, but you go gauge all you want. Figure out what combination of hieroglyphs award you which superpower. For instance, the combination bird, cane, bowl gives you warp, except at novice level, while the combination cane, bird, bowl, the same hieroglyphs in a different order, gives you air bomb. Pick up a particular combination when its power will do you the most good. Again, you have this tiny little area that you're playing in. Crap is coming at you all the time. As well as games where you can't see the crap coming until it's right there. You don't have time be, to be doing all this. Strategizing, seems to me. You just pick up what you can pick up when you're there. But maybe that's my overly simplistic view of playing games like this. I don't know. At the end of the manual has sort of, uh, has, well not sort of, has little pictures of all the different guardians. The Mini Sphinx, the Hauling Sphinx, the Warrior Flea, P-H-L-E-A. The Flying Fish, the Fire Pot, the Vulture, the Burrowing Uwe, or Uve, Phantom Glider, um, Scarab, I don't know if I said Scarab already. Treasures include the Golden Egg, the Gem, and the Silver Ingot. And that is how you play Desert Falcon. The Honest Gamers Review observed, although Desert Falcon tries to be an arcade shooter in a progress quest, it's neither here nor there. The game suffers because of this indecision. Rather than strengthening one aspect, the developers spread their efforts thin, and the end result is a bland, awkward shmup. They have the uh, cover image from the manual that I was talking about earlier with the caption, What is this? I don't even. 1987, back then we still thought of games in arcade terms. We racked up as many points as we could to show off our nifty patches and impress other game geeks. Video games, though, were evolving into a new creature. Progress and completion became the main objective. Levels rose and fall in an arc. You started off, survived perils, fought a boss. Then you were the one step closer to finding the princess or stopping the evil mastermind. Great titles were still in production that used the older scheme, and there were even some that presented you with a campaign whilst also featuring score attack elements. The French product was usually sloppy, awkward, or plain dull. Enter Desert Falcon. The premise suggests arcade mayhem. It's a no-brainer where the game should go. Keep it simple, keep it fast, and addiction should follow. But that's where the game goes awry. Levels Rise and fall in that same arc-like style I mentioned earlier. You fly past a score of monoliths and pyramids, blast what few insects appear, then engage in a boss battle against a sphinx. Then it's on to the next level for more of the same thing. I dig progress-based games, but Atari 2600 is a horrible venue for them. This game is much too slow and tedious to be addictive. It has wonky flight physics. Oh yeah, that was kind of 
it was almost making me nauseous a little bit at times. I'd forgotten that. I played this yesterday. And it had some sort of weird, I don't know if it was a flicker or what, but it was like, I gotta stop looking at this for a while because it's kind of messing with my brain. The game tries to be an arcade shooter. This is the review again. And a progress quest, but it's neither here nor there. That's the quote I read earlier. Created during a time of transition when progress was becoming temp contemporary and scoring was humbly stepping down. This game just had the rotten luck of being born too early or too late. Comma 8, comma 1 at WordPress.com concluded that among the pros for this game, considering the limitations of the television interface adapter, it's impressive. The cons, these limitations also hinder some of the play control. I also have to point out that this one actually came out for two of Atari's 8-bit con consoles, the 7800 as well as the 2600. The game has one lone boss who appears at the end of every stage, the Howling Sphinx. You have to shoot him in a very specific spot in the face to defeat him, and he summons waves of enemy birds while spitting fire at you. All the while making a noise you wouldn't think the 2600-7800 sound chip could make possible. Oh yeah, I can't recreate the noise here, but that was one of the things that bugged me and made me have to turn the thing off. It's not a terrible game, the review says, but it is hobbled by some issues with its graphics, especially in the 2600 version. It can't produce the detailed sprites seen in the 7800 version. You can get an idea of what you're flying over, like monuments, pyramids, and lakes, but you don't get the level of depth perception it requires. You can't tell if you're too low or not over left or right enough. Touching anything in the game knocks you out, and you can get easily you can only get knocked out a handful of times before seeing game over. Final score is six out of ten. Alright, well So Desert Falcon. The Falcon. The majestic bird of prey. I think we should explore this game now and soar into the heavens like that great bird. After the break, you will be the Falcon, and I shall always be the Falconer. There's no Saturday Night Live reference for some of you old-timers like me. Okay, I got the knives and forks. You grab the plates. For what? For the Desert Falcon. You said you wanted to come over and have Desert Falcon tonight. Desert Falcon. I said I wanted to play Desert Falcon. Oh. You didn't cook a bird, did you? No. I'll be right back. All right. So we're playing Desert Falcon. I'm looking at the uh, title screen here. Novice, standard, expert. Wait, I lost the screen. Never mind. I'm playing on the standard level. Bouncy music. When I saw the title, or not the title screen, the, the opening screen, at first I thought, well, this is kind of cool. You got the pyramids, and you got this weird bird thing. Um, but then I quickly realized, nah, the uh, graphics are, are pretty rudimentary. You got this weird howling sphinx thing that doesn't actually howl. Um, the pyramids are good enough, you can tell, oh, okay, that's a pyramid. I just got uh, taken by a howling sphinx. Yes, I crashed into a city, I guess. Alright, I'm picking up a hieroglyph of some sort. I'm picking up another one. A feather. The only 
object I'm seeing that I can remember is the Howling Sphinx. Oh yeah, novice, standard, advanced, expert. Uh, those are the levels. Um, I was talking to you guys, so I didn't do very well, which is to say I scored no points. So we'll try this again. Wait, let me look at my cheat sheet. Uh, what am I looking for? The Desert Guardians are the Mini Sphinx, the Howling Sphinx, the Warrior Flea, the Scarab, the Flying Fish, the Fire Pot, the Vulture, the Burrowing Uwe, Uwe, whatever, the Phantom Glider, the Golden Egg, the Gem, the Silver Ingot. And let's see, what is it? The Ankh, the Bull, the Eye, the Man, the Bird, the Cane, the Feather. So far, the Feather is the only one I can really look at and say, yep, that's a Feather. And the Sun over the Water. Alright. The Desert, by the way, in this game is green, which is weird, but it is. The Water, you can actually tell, oh yeah, that's Water. I suppose they had to make the Desert green because they made the pyramids and the, uh, the cities yellow or kind of sandish color and it'd be too hard to pick them out, I suppose. All right, let's try this one more time. I don't like these controls. It feels counterintuitive to me. You push up to go down and down to go up. I don't like it. Hey, I shot that howling sphinx that doesn't howl. I got a hieroglyphic, I guess. I crashed into nothing. Oh, I looked away and the howling sphinx got me. I'm shooting just so I can say I did something. I got a unk and a bird thing. Wow, that was brutal. I don't think if I played again, I'd do any better. So, um, yeah, I think I'm done with that. The noise is kind of annoying. So I think I'm just gonna howl my Sphinx away from here. Or something. Back to you in the studio. Hey everyone, this is Michael, one of the hosts of the Atari XEGS Cart by Cart podcast. Do you like Atari? Of course you do. What about the 8-bit computer line? It was one of the best. Well, how about you consider joining Bill, David, Kieran, and myself as we review the cartridge-based games for Atari's 8-bit computer line. We also review budget games which are mostly released only in the UK. But that's not all. We also dig up game history, share personal experiences, and perform questionable comedy. You'll get all of that and for free just by listening to us on either iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, Player FM, or from our website at xegs8bit.com. That's xegs, the number 8, bit.com. And when you're done listening, please send us your hate mail, because we really need the feedback so we know someone is tuning in. Hey, it's me, Bill, your host, the guy you've been listening to this whole episode. Do you enjoy the stories I write and read to you every week on this podcast, but you feel like you just need a break from my voice? I get it. My family does sometimes, too. Here's an option. Some of the stories from the show are now collected in a volume titled Misery Banana, Very Short Stories Inspired by Old Games and Odd Thoughts. You can order it wherever you like to order books. I hope you'll check it out. Thanks. So here's the thing about Desert Falcon. I don't like this game. Like I said, it really did bother my eyes a little bit to the point where I had to turn it off. There was some sort of weird flicker or something. 
that was creeping me out and was messing with my head. So that may not have helped things. But even when I was playing it, it just all the things in those reviews are true. It just it looks bad on the 2600. I've never seen it on any other platform. And maybe it looks okay on other, you know, on the 7800 or whatever. But it looks bad on here. You really, you can't tell if you're too high or too low. The controls don't make sense to me. You know, pu pulling back on the joystick to go up. And pushing forward to go down seems dumb to me. You can't tell when stuff is coming. You can't really tell what stuff is. The little chart at the bottom of the screen doesn't help you at all. It's not a good game. Now, when I first turned it on and looked at the screen and thought, for the 2600, that's a pretty good looking pyramid. It was tiny, which I guess is to convey the idea that you're high up in the air or something. And I think, if I remember right, your Falcon thing looks pretty good. But everything else is garbage. The uh, the bit the bit boss, the one a reviewer reviewer called it the uh, the fire sphinx or whatever it's called. I've forgotten now what it's called. The howling sphinx just is just a blob on the screen. You'd have no idea it was a sphinx if they didn't tell you that. So yeah, I I don't I don't like this game. It feels like I I, don't, I was gonna say it feels it feels like a good effort, but I'm not even sure it's a good effort. Maybe they were going for something that they couldn't pull off, like the one review said. Uh, I don't know. Uh, the point is they didn't pull it off, and I'm disappointed because the, the setup for the game, the premise for the game, sounds really cool. But maybe it was a game that just wasn't ready to be made, or was ready to be made, but not for this platform. I don't know. It's story time. Atari Bites Yes, it's story Story, story, story time With Bill This week's story is titled At least for now Dispense with this It's had many different titles None of which I've liked very much So if you don't like that title uh, I won't feel bad But I do hope you like the story So, here you go The sun baked the Egyptian desert Hot even for the peak of summer in this part of the world. Babu and Adam, as if daring the sun god Ra to sweat the life out of them a bit faster, stood atop a sandy bluff overlooking, well, more sand, in the Valley of Kings below. The eyes of both men were locked on the ancient Ushabadi statue. Ushabadi being a servant to the dead in the afterlife, perched on the cliff's edge. You ever watch Looney Tunes? Adam asked his brother, knowing full well Babu had, having grown up together in Syracuse. What? Babu said, either through genuine confusion or unwillingness to engage. Looney Tunes, Adam said. You know, cartoons. Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Yosemite Sam, those guys. I guess, Babu said. Well, re remember the one where Yosemite's all like, I'm going to rob that train. And Bugs goes, and I'm going to save that train. You and me, we're kind of like that. Babu shook his head and smiled a little. I'm walking out of here with that statue, he said. You know that. Adam stuck his hands in his pockets and squinted in the sunlight for a moment before answering. Well, that's pretty much what Yosemite said, and you know how things always worked out for him. Growing up, Adam wanted to be an archaeologist. Okay, truth. He wanted to be Indiana Jones. Who didn't? He also liked the short-run series of movies on network TV with Louis Gossett Jr. as an adventuring anthropologist named Gideon Oliver. Whatever the inspiration, Adam couldn't wait to go to college. 
Babu was a different story. Why can't you be more like Adam? Their mother asked for like the millionth time as Babu relaxed on the couch after the stress of his third arrest in as many months. Babu finished high school but spent the following summer racking up petty criminal charges. Vandalism, trespassing, shoplifting key lime pie yogurt and Elmer Fudd shaped Pez dispensers. Typical stuff like that. Adam walks with the aid of the gods, Babu said to his mom. It's right there in the name. Me? I am but a child. He laughed. His mother smirked and got up to leave the room before she said something she'd regret. Hey, Babu called. Do we have any yogurt? When Adam finished his undergraduate studies in anthropology, he invited Babu to a gathering of his friends at a cabin upstate. Why'd you invite me up here? Babu asked as the sun set. You're my brother, Adam said. Thought you might want to share my graduation with me. I don't really fit in with your college buddies, do I? Well, they did like the omelets. It was true. Babu made killer veggie omelets. You know what I mean, Babu said. Man, the only one hung up on your record is you, Adam countered. The encroaching darkness obscured Babu's smirk and hushed any further conversation. Just being there together was enough. The next few years rumbled along, Adam sifting through the sands looking for artifacts, and Babu floated, floating from meaningless job to meaningless job. The years, the sands, the jobs... None left much of an impression, even as life's currents pushed the brothers apart. Adam got on the tenure track for full professorship in anthropology. Babu went to prison for grand larceny. Why? Adam asked on one of his visits to his brother. Visits his brother protested every time. Why what? Adam gestured around. What do you think? Babu scoffed, and then his face got quite serious. He seemed to really consider the question. I think, in my life, I missed some things. A good job, maybe college, mom's respect, more weekends at that cabin with my brother and omelets. I guess maybe I was trying to replace those things with whatever I could find. Adam rocked back in his chair. Whoa. Or, you know, Babu said, maybe I just like stealing stuff. When Babu got out of prison, Adam got him a part-time gig at the lab where the anthropology department cleans the fossils. He ran errands, cleaned up the lab, made copies of syllabi for Adam's classes, whatever. One day, Adam asked Babu to find his passport and book him a flight to Cairo. Some promising finds in the Valley of Kings, he said. The team and I are leaving tonight before the other teams move in and lay claim. Sweet, Babu said. Thought I might go to the new food truck on the corner. You know, before all the veg veggie egg rolls are gone. Grab me a couple, Adam said, distracted. I'll lead him on the way to the airport. Hey, that plane ticket? I gotta move. Adam rushed off to find his favorite whisk broom and sifter. Yeah, Babu muttered. I gotta move too. Cut to 36 hours later. A cliff's edge and two brothers. I know a guy who'll pay big for that Ushabadi statue, Babu said. And then what? Adam asked. Babu was stumped for a moment. World travel, he finally said. Adam laughed. Until yesterday, except for prison, you'd never been out of New York. You got what you needed, Babu said. The job, the respect. What do you need, Babu? Cash, Babu said, running toward the statue. Adam sighed and stuck out one leg. Babu stumbled spectacularly, face planting in the sand, a couple of feet from the Ushabadi, which wobbled a bit, but didn't fall. Babu glared at his brother, who just shrugged. Hey, Adam said. Remember when we were kids and you got busted for stealing Pez dispensers? I thought my brother was so cool. You have a very strange cool meter. Maybe, 
Adam said and reached into an interior pocket of his field vest. I thought my brother was so cool, in fact, that I went out and ripped off one of my own. He pulled out of the vest pocket a porky pig Pez dispenser. Been carrying this around ever since. Babu smirked. Mom said I should be like you, not the other way around. I'm still better looking, Adam said. The Pez in that thing's got to be gross by now, Babu pointed out. Adam laughed. Not really the point. Point actually is you're a screw-up. I'm a screw-up. Babu looked at his brother, then Porky Pig, then his brother again. You're not going to let me have the Yushi body, are you? Hell no, Adam said. But how about some Pez? The Pez was stale, but the Yushi body didn't fall. Life was already looking up. Insert some game sounds. And that's our show. Thanks to Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com for Creative Commons' use of his songs, Reformat, Take a Chance, and Pinball Spring. Thanks to Mike Mann for the Mad Mike Hughes theme. Thanks to Sean Courtney for the Storytime theme. You can find Atari Bytes on many podcatchers, which you know because you're listening to one. Swoop down like the falcon upon the desert that is Apple Podcasts and deposit the treasure that is a golden review of this podcast so that other listeners can reap the rewards of valuable gems and onks and things of the podcasting landscape. Okay, basically, when you leave a review like a five-star review, it tickles the uh, nether regions of the algorithm and makes the podcast shoot way up in, uh, in searchability to, uh, to get to the attention of other potential listeners. And then the show gets more listeners and our little community grows and grows and grows. You guys probably know all that already. But for those of you who don't, that's how it works. Email the show at ataribytes2016 at gmail.com. Like the show on our Facebook page. Follow the show on Twitter at AtariBytes. Or follow me personally at Carnival of Glee. Also check us out on Instagram. You can also leave a voicemail. Call us at 563-265-1978. Leave a message about any damn thing you want. And maybe I'll play it on the show. Please also consider supporting the show financially by making a donation on the AtariBytes Patreon page. Guess what? There are brand new tiers. That's right, you can get new stuff, bonus episodes. We're doing bonus episodes now. You can get episodes early, all sorts of cool stuff. So go check out the Atari Bytes Patreon page and, uh, and you know, see if you can help us out. Help us keep the lights on here in the podcast studio. The AB underscore pod underscore store on Zazzle.com is also still there. My next project is to work on that and do, maybe do some updates there. If you have suggestions for things you would like to see on a shirt or a mug or some other item, let me know and I'll give it some thought. Check out my new website, which isn't so new now, I guess. It's been around for a little while. www.carnivalofgleedcreations.com All my stuff is there. Stuff about Atari Bytes, links to the episodes, links to the show notes, show notes and episode links for my other podcast. It's a podcast, Charlie Brown. Your one-stop monthly for all things in and around the Peanuts universe, um, the comic strip, the characters, Snoopy, Charlie Brown, etc., etc., the TV specials, the movies, the merchandise, the mind of Charles Schultz, in projects inspired by all of that. We've had playwrights, we've had authors, we've had illustrators. Coming up, we've even got an actor who did the voice of Charlie Brown in a whole bunch of TV specials. We had a guy who wrote a graphic novel 
I'm reimagining the Peanuts characters as adults in a dystopian landscape. We got all sorts of stuff over there. So go check that out. Find out more at carnivalofleaguecreations.com. Find out about books I wrote, like the Misery Banana book and other stuff. All of it, right there. It's amazing. Isn't technology awesome? Speaking of awesome, thanks to the patrons, all two of you. You guys are awesome. Michael Tyler and G. Ray Defender, thanks for sticking in there. You know, throwing a little donation our way every month to help with the costs of putting out a podcast. Because as fun as it is, there are costs involved. Yeah, so what else are we doing? I guess now, all I gotta do is tell you what's coming up next week. Next time on Atari Bytes. Gorf. Whenever I see that, I immediately think of Dorf on Golf. It's Dorf, right? The Tim Conway character that he used to do. And that's what I think of when I think of Gorf. Or I think of Worf from Star Trek The Next Generation. I'm going to guess this game is neither of those things. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. Because I don't actually really know anything about Gorf. Other than, what was it? I think if you bought Gorf and Wizard of War and sent in proof of purchase, you could get Maddenus, the John Madden video game from the 80s. That was in the commercial that I played for you in the Wizard of War episode. So, oh my god, I can get Maddenus now. I wonder what happens if I mail in my proof of purchase now. Maybe they'll send me something. I don't know. I'll think about that. So until next time, go play some old games. They've missed you. Oh, 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 oh,